Thank you, sister. Amen. This is the word of God, right? I hope you've uh, taken note of today's service before the sermon. Um, It's called your attention to the word of God. We sang it directly even. I would encourage you to take that bulletin of yours and uh, go read Psalm 119. It'll take you some time because it's very long, but you'll notice that we sang to the tune of oh, for a thousand tongues. We sang... uh, the truths about God, about delighting in his commands, about knowing his law to be a law of liberty, that his statutes should be ours, we should delight in them. I hope you listened to our sister as she read God's word. Um, As we come to a time where we break it down, it's helpful to remember that this time should only exalt that. It should exalt God's word. If it doesn't, it's it's really a vain effort that we're after. Um, Whispers of wisdom and weapons of war. That's the things you heard about just now read from the preacher of Ecclesiastes. You know, weapons of war are loud and they're upon you suddenly. We uh, went last week uh, to an air show down in Houston. It was a disaster. Our kids aren't old enough to do that yet, but I pressed on. Well, we had to leave early. And so as we're heading to the buses, which was a miserable trip of misery, so much misery. You hear my kids laughing. Um, we got them on the bus finally in exhaustion, and, uh, and I actually, we were waiting. The bus wasn't leaving yet, and they had just started demoing an F-22 Raptor. That's the most powerful fighter on the planet as we, you and I sit here today. And I'm standing by the, behind me is all the people who paid more money to park closer rather than us plebeians, and, um, and, and we were, they're all behind me, and the jet is making turns out above the parking lot to get back to show center. And when it, just by simply making a turn past me, it was so loud, the the noise of the engines were so loud, it set off a hundred car alarms, like just instantly, just unbelievable. And the weapon of war that it was, was just terrifying. And I sat there thinking, you know, to us, it's, uh, you know, hearing that sound is is laughs and, uh, you know, amazement. But in other parts of the world, that is the sound of sheer terror and fear. You know, that means death. And uh, weapons of war are really nothing to shy at, you know. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, whispers of wisdom are subtle. And the Word of God wants to make an argument through the preacher and through other places we'll see today that the whispers of wisdom actually are the ones that should be pursued. Though they're subtle, they're the ones that can actually have an effect. They can change the whole world. The weapons of warfare, which are loud and obnoxious and seemingly trying to get things done, are, are actually less effective than God's whispered wisdom. At least that's the hope of what you just heard read for you. Quickly, um, you may, I do want to call account though, like that the preacher understands war. He, he understands it well. He is in the context of being a king who's trying to manage a kingdom. If he's Solomon, which we think he is, he's always dealing with the front here, the front there, the battle this way and that. He's looking for wisdom to lead in a greater effect. And as I put this sermon together, I thought about World War II because, you know, World War II was coined the battle for the soul of the world. And that, that's, that's effective because it was, it, you know, it's a right title because the whole world during World War II in the 1940s, everyone was pausing finally when, when all the allies were brought in to realize if this evil doesn't get eradicated, we will look at um, a, a world that looks totally different. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be something we don't want. And up rose leaders, and one of them was a guy named Winston Churchill. He's a controversial figure, undoubtedly. Uh, He's famous Brit, probably the most famous Brit to ever live. He was prime minister during the time of World War II. Now, what Churchill 
weaponized is exactly what the preacher is trying to lead us to in the text. So I thought it was fitting to bring it up in introduction. Churchill knew the power of words. He knew the whispers of wisdom could actually topple and bring down the most heinous weapons of war. One website said it really powerfully. In the dark early days of the Second World War, Churchill had very few real weapons. He attacked with words instead. The speeches that he delivered uh, then are among the most powerful ever given in the English language. His words were defiant. They were heroic. They were human. And they were lightened by flashes of humor at times. They reached out to everyone in Britain, even across Nazi-occupied Europe and throughout the world. One journalist noted and said, he took the English language and he sent it into battle. Whispers of wisdom echoed across Britain, across Europe, and across a world that was listening for hope, that needed hope. Now, this is not the only war, the only war where words were powerful, okay? History is replete with examples, whether it be World War II, whether it be all the way back to the Trojan War, the ancients, uh, the, the oldest war, wars we can think of. The idea of the pen and the words spoken being powerful is an original idea, but listen, it doesn't originate in any war. It originates in the place where speech started, heaven. It originates in God. God's word alone is what can bring help. If there's anything that can help wayward, war-torn, battled people, it is God's word. And the, the, the message this morning from the preacher of Ecclesiastes speaks to this idea. And he lays the whole sermon, as you just heard, in the context of political turmoil. He lays it in the context of battle and of things that were very present to his readership and are even present to you and I. But what he really wants to do and what we hope God can do for all of us who face the perils of the preacher this morning is he wants to get past the battle scene and into the the most important battle that can be fought, okay? It's the battle that plays out over 7 billion times right now in this very hour that I'm preaching to you. It's the battle on the tiniest of fronts, the human heart. And on the battlefield of the human heart, there are options. There are two ways to live And you are battling this battle all the time. I'm battling this battle all the time. And we need help if we're going to win the war. We need to discern what is a whisper of wisdom that we can pursue and what is a weapon of war that we should decry and get away from. You see, as creatures made in the image of God, there is a battle going on. It's not a battle for the world. It's a battle for your soul. Your soul is constantly being waged in war. You need to control it. Who can? Well, the preacher takes for us in this passage the weight of life, and he says it really comes down to two things, wisdom and folly. He'll talk to us about that this week. We'll look at it and finishing it next week. But he says wisdom and folly. And so first, he says, we need to set out to see the weapons of war that are used by fools. We need to study folly, okay? Now, I'm saying he does it first. This sermon is a bit confusing, and I'm sorry. It's just the way it came together. But we're going to just look at the whole passage, and we're going to say, that's folly, that's folly, that's folly. And it's the weapons of war that the preacher is trying to steal us away from. There are uh, the weapons of war in this life that are not discreet. They're destructive. We're going to look at those first. And then second, we're going to discover in this passage the whispers of wisdom that gets spoken by the wise. They are whispers of wisdom, and there are those in this life 
They're not flashy, but they're foundational, okay? Finally, I want to apply it. And so before we leave today, I hope to apply the wisdom of God against the foolishness of man, okay? There's really two ways to live, and the preacher makes it plain. Let's talk about the weapons of war. Let's talk about the big and flashy things that our flesh loves, which are used by fools. Did you notice the phrase weapons of war is taken directly from the sermon text? Uh, Know your Bible well today. I'm going to ask you to flip through it, so keep it in front of you. Verse 18, though, says very clearly, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. It's a proper title for our first point to say, let's study the weapons of war here. Every person in this world at every moment of their life is either living like what the Bible calls foolish or like a fool or what the Bible calls living wisely. In every moment you live, you're either acting the fool or you're living in wisdom according to God. There really isn't a lot of give. There may be some gray area, but ultimately, if you look back with hindsight, that's 2020, you can point to a thought you had or an action you did and you can say folly or good, okay? That's just human. And the preacher wants us to think in those categories. But we must establish to think in them biblically. And that's what the preacher's audience would have understood. They're they're trying to understand the perspective. Now, his perspective in this book, it seeks to look for anything under the sun that can give meaning to our seemingly meaningless life. That's what he's trying to do. So he wants to exhaustively consider categories. Well, one of them is common grace. Common grace is a general grace of God towards all humanity. It's this idea that people grow. That's a grace of God that you don't stay an infant your whole life. The idea that you eat food. Everybody eats or they die, but they do eat. Everybody drinks. People have children and they raise families. People in raising families enjoy things. People that don't. They don't enjoy things, right? But if you do enjoy life, whether you have a family or you don't, or you you grow up uh, to be old or you die young, there's a moment where you're going to be in nature. You're going to grow businesses. You're going to make money. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. You're going to experience thrills. You're going to have a host of other good and gracious gifts. Now, that's common grace. All good comes from God, and it is his common grace toward us. God says it like this, rain falls on the just and on the unjust. Okay, it happens to all of us. This is common grace. Wisdom can be experienced in some of those ways. So common grace does give wisdom to people. But like all common graces, just like the common grace of wisdom, it can have its limits. And in the non-believer's life, it's very clear. The limit of common grace in a non-believer is what we explore in the first point here. And verse 18 is summarizing it very, very clearly. Okay, so we're going to pick up and utilize the weapons of war, as the preacher calls it, because here's what happens when common grace meets its limit in this world, destruction. That's at the end of common grace comes destruction, comes an explanation as to why things have been so bad. Now, the preacher observes the error of folly throughout this entire little section we're studying together this morning. And he says its ultimate end result is destruction. It it destroys good. It just takes one sinner, one sin even, we're going to see, to destroy much good. Now, how does he do that for us? He does it through a story, doesn't he? Did you notice that? I love that. The story starts in verse 14. Let's read it again. Uh, Only this time, I want you to paint it in your head. Kids, 
If you're listening to me, close your eyes. Adults, don't be too old to not be like a kid, right? Maybe close your eyes. But paint the picture in your head that happens in verse 14 as we read it. Here's the story. Maybe I'd do a different accent if I was at home talking to my kids, but I won't do that for you guys. But just imagine there was a little city with a few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But... There was a poor, there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet, no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Now, you can open your eyes or look up here again if you had them closed. Left running wild, our Hollywood-soaked imaginations can paint the finest of battlefields in our minds pretty quickly. When you hear about a few men in a city and they're waiting and the great king has come upon them and who's going to save the day? Maybe for you, a key in Greeks of Homer's Iliad, you know, trying to storm Troy. That's probably just me because I'm forced to teach it. But, you know, that, that, they come into mind. Or maybe the great invasions of World War I or World War II come into mind. Maybe you have William Wallace, you know, and his band of soldiers tearing apart their enemies for freedom, right? Or maybe if you're so bold, to, you know, in your minds, you're storming the gates of Mordor themselves with armies and men, of men and elves. Alike. I don't know where your mind goes, but our imaginations really shouldn't run amok. Okay, the preacher's not painting your favorite Hollywood movie. He's painting something that seems small and insignificant. He's painting a tiny city with a few men in it, and there's a bully present. That's what he's painting. And he's trying to show you a picture that the bully in the lot has shown up. The great king is setting himself up as just that, a rolling stone. And a rolling stone doesn't stop for anyone. It tramples everyone that's underneath it. Why? Because it is destined for great things. It's a weapon of war. And so he paints this picture for you and me to show this city under siege. It's being besieged. It's being battered. And the powerful lust of this great king is upon them. The preacher's analogy is strikingly similar to the honesty of life that he's been after in the most recent chapters. Okay? Injustice happens. That's a fact. What we think is right or even know is right gets sometimes, oftentimes thwarted, thrown underneath, and injustice can systemically abound. There is great pains in the world. The, the preacher wants to bring up oppression. He wants to bring up issue, but he does it quickly here in the form of an analogy because he's kind. <laughs> you, you think too long about oppression and like being under oppression, you'll get sad. But there's a better way to learn. It's parabolic. So he teaches in a parable, a story here. And he wants you to entrap your life in that city with that man. He really does. Because there's times where your life feels like that. It's just you and a few. And everyone's beating at the door, trying to beat it down. And you're going to be consumed. But also, he wants, I think, us to realize that, that there is um, a willingness in stepping into imagination here to walk alongside this analogy. He wants us to, to, to realize we have a need to listen and learn from wisdom. We need to learn some things. So a little city that was minding its own business becomes now the subject of a major king's cons conquest. So brother, sister, friend, hear me. Let the anxiety begin to set in for you. It should. Let the panic be incited. Okay, the gates of this city will fall soon. The lion is at the door. And as Homer famously wrote, there are no trustworthy oaths between men and lions. There's danger. In our story, the king is the weapon of war. 
He's a foolish man. He's pursuing folly and madness. If we put ourselves outside the walls of the city rather than being in it, like I just described, you know what you find? You find the anger of a ruler that rises against you, just like in verse four. Do you see verse four of chapter 10? That's what you see outside the walls, an anger of the ruler that rises against you. You see the shouting of a ruler among fools as chapter 9, 17 records. Do you see that in your Bible? The great king bent on one thing alone, having total power at whatever cost. And make no mistake, the king is great, but it's a worldly greatness. It's a fleshly vice. It's an anger that he has. It's a shouting that he has. He's willing to mount all his forces to destroy good. Okay, what he's painting here is he is a Hitler pounding the streets of England with constant force from his air force, the Reich, Luftwaffe, dangers of the sky. He is Lord Sauron battering a ram grand against the doors of Minas Tirith. He's the great king. But listen, the great king can be many faces of evil. And this story is much more about the human involvement in this great war effort than it is about one battle. You see, in the middle of a besieged city that we can begin to understand, uh, that's where we can begin to understand the destruction of folly left unchecked in our lives. A leader like this king is so corrupted that a close examination of him in wisdom should immediately warn us not only of his failings, but even of our own potential failings. We love the villain in a movie to our own shame most of the time because we see the villainous things in ourselves. And the weapons of war that folly are being painted in so clearly here, um, the temptation would be to maybe only always locate yourself inside the city and to not realize that within you, the very battle is raging. Lord Sauron or Hitler himself or the murderous regime that you're thinking of being outside or let's paint it in real reality, okay? The circumstances that would come upon your faith that you would say are battering the doors of your life and trying to kill and overtake you. Those thoughts, those things, those people, man, that's happening inside you. That's happening inside you. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good? Well, point one of weapons of war is if you don't have wisdom and you just have weapons of war, you have not one but multiple sinners in a war. You, you have what men can do to men in war, and it's nothing to shrug at. The, the fool, Proverbs says, forgets self-control. He's like a walled city and his lack of self-control is the little drain that the enemy can blow sky high to invade his whole kingdom. That's what a man without self-control, without wisdom, without knowledge of God, without understanding, without God's way, that's what he'll be left with. Wisdom's better than the weapons of war. Why? Because one sinner can destroy all good. Think about it personally, okay? Be in or out, but, but be somewhere today. One loss of anger. One moment of accepting sinful greed, one slip into gossip, one moment of too long of lingering in sadness, one self, selfishness can ruin a moment, can't it? You've been on vacation before. You've had a play date. Your own marriage could testify. Your church unity will boast in it. A business partner, some relationship in work, some friendship 
can all be severally and severely lost by one folly. One foolish endeavor can land you not in the walls where the besieging is happening, but outside realizing I'm the one battering the wall. And it's right here inside my heart and I don't know what to do. If it's not personal, it's political. Consider the context of war. He's given that here, right? His readers should think, I mean, one traitor's information could seal the destruction of millions. We know the name Benedict Arnold. What we don't know is all the names of the people who died as a result of such villainy or treachery. A few sinners can bring down world trade centers. One evil dictator could ensure the poverty of millions. If you can't understand it personally, understand it politically. But if you can't understand it personally or politically, understand it eternally. Because James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. To be guilty of all of God's law is to inherit the eternal punishment of hell. Friend, hear me. If you're lost today, there are many liberal theologians. There are some ancient theologians. There are certain denominations in the Christian tradition, and there are other non-biblical worldviews that would diminish and would ignore the cosmic treason of your personal sin, and they would tell you that there will not be an eternal punishment. They are wrong. Despite man's fanciful desires to diminish hell, hell burns hot, hotter than ever with an open mouth, and there is a wide road that leads to it, and it is great, and those who fall upon it fall into great destruction. Hell will be filled with fools, so make no mistake about it. The imagery of the preacher gets clearer in chapter 10. Let me give them to you quickly. Like dead flies. Sit with that for a second. Think about a rotting corpse. Like dead flies making the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so just a little bit of folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Spray all the Febreze you want on yourself personally, on the situation politically. Dare, try to do it eternally. And you know, you know what you're going to find? No Febreze covers up the perfume smell of a dead body. As much as you like, the smell will always come through. Why? Because sin corrupts the whole person of man. Foolishness has a cost. A little bit of a folly can and will turn earthly wisdom and honor on its head. No one washes away the lasting effects of their own folly and foolish living. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10. A wise man's heart, what does it do? It inclines him to the right. But a fool's heart to the left. There's a sharp, there's a sharp turn there. And the wise man's heart has been changed but, by wisdom, but the heart of the fool, it grows darker as he makes the wrong turn over and over and over again until finally he's spun around. You may find the context of this message concerning the weapons of war, uh, you know, to somehow exempt you, right? I, I found that as I prepared it. You know, the great king's error belongs to the greater sinners, it belongs to the Hitlers and the Stalins and the dictators of our world and the world's past. But hear me, friend, the great sinners that the preacher is preaching about, they must find warning in me and you. They must find warning, especially also if we're the people of God and the people we talk to. Romans 3 is clear. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Talk about your dead flies. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp, of snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are so swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, listen, the weapons of war are used by the fool and they belong to the fool. The preacher saw this. He saw it side by side. Wisdom, folly. You would think amidst the shouting of the fool along the road or amidst the shouting of anger of the ruler that we are in our sin, you would think that the answer to folly would be for wisdom to be louder, right? Right? I'm trying to get bigger and louder in this point. Because you would think that to offset such loudness of war, tyranny, and brokenness, and difficulty, the answer would be wisdom needs to get louder. It needs to stomp its fist in the midst of the meeting. It needs to stand up and defy, right? With a loud bang. Well, look, you'd be wrong. You know why? Wisdom is not parading on the war front where the battle cry is. Wisdom is whispering in the back where the captains devise the, the real victory, okay? The whispers of wisdom are the opposite of what the preacher wants you to see this morning. You need to get with the weapons of war, okay? Dead flies do stink on a dead body. That's a fact. But you need to realize that, that there is a whisper of truth that can give your life and can give your personal and political and eternal life significance. But you got to be able to hear it. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 started the whole, the whole you know, sermon this morning when we read it, but we haven't talked about it. He, remember, the preacher is saying, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. Hear me out. He says it's great. He says there is a way for wisdom to be great. Now, I want to remind you, up till now, the preacher has really tried to outsmart wisdom or he's downplayed wisdom or he's recently embraced for just a moment that true wisdom can come from fearing God. But now he says, I see great wisdom. There's a pattern reminder in Ecclesiastes. And if you're like me, you would get sick of it. Like, I get sick of it. I'm just being honest. In preparing sermons, it's hard to sit with him again. But you know why? Because his message is like reruns of songs that get stuck in our heads. Have you had a song in your head recently that you can't get out? It's funny for a moment, but when you get upset about something and you're really trying to, I don't know, pray to God, or maybe you're trying to talk to somebody about how you feel, and all of a sudden you pause for just a half second, and then bam, there's Justin Bieber saying something stupid, right? I mean, that's miserable, right? It's like a rerun that just keeps popping up in your head. You know, Disney understood it in that movie, uh, you know, about emotions, right? It's like triple dent gum. Blah, blah, right? just, why am I thinking about that? That's, that's kind of how the preacher of Ecclesiastes' message sometimes hits us. It's, it's like the dude's on repeat. But hear me. Here's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, you know, you think about wisdom all the time, but you don't nuance it all the time. You think you live a wise life, but you know what? You don't, you don't really think about it. You got to think until you think. Or as one brother told me this last week, you got to pray until you pray. You got to read until you really read. You got to sit until you really sit. You got to think. And here he says, you got to listen if you're really going to listen. Because oftentimes the, gra the greatest message God is speaking is not being screamed from the heavens, though he'll do that. Sometimes the greatest message of God is the whisper. Let's do this, okay? 
Let's run the script again. Let's screenplay again. Let this story roll in your mind again. If you want to close your eyes, that's fine. So a little city was there, right? Mining its own business. And again, it's the subject of major king's conquests. I want you to think about your life. Let the anxiety anxiety begin, okay? Paint the battle again to rework this point. Okay, begin anxiety, insight, panic. The gates are going to fall soon. You're going to give in. The lion's at the door. Remember, there's no packs. There's no packs of peace between lions and men. But, verse 15, there was found in this city a poor, wise man. And by his wisdom, he delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. The poor man comes through in a big way. And check it out. It's not from his poverty. His poverty shows his relevance in the eyes of men to be counted as low. He's not a great warrior. He's not a politician. He's not a leader. He has no power and resource to help stop the siege that dooms all of them. He's poor, but he's got wisdom. Because he's not just poor, he's also wise. And his wisdom is the very thing that delivers the city from destruction. But look what happens in culture. Oh, the the amnesia of culture sets in. You know why? Culture has no time for the humility of this man. They don't care about his humility as an example or his meekness as an example or his gentleness as an example or his patience. No, for them, the wisdom once celebrated because they got deliverance through it quickly can become the wisdom of old. It can become a wisdom of myth and it can disappear. Why? Why does the preacher say this so quickly? That, hey, he's delivered, but guess what? No one remembers him. Because we as humans are fickle. You know, we need final consummation of things, but we don't have it. So when we don't have it, we search for some kind of consummation in other things. We're forgetful of our needs sooner than we're freed from it. Golly, that's true. (laughs) Pride that almost leveled the city begins to swell again. And systematically, the weapons of war replace the whispers of wisdom. You know, look at verse 16 and 17. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Even though the fools of this city move on from the wise man, and even wisdom itself, and they rush to hear the rush of fools again, the preacher makes it clear what he has seen and what he has understood and what me and you must glean from this, okay? Better than power is the wisdom of that poor man, regardless of whether people want to use it or they want to disregard it. You see, this man has something greater. That yes, for a moment, it it led him to to success. He defeated the enemy. He saved the city. But even when the people forget him, there's something to learn from him that's wiser, and it's God's wisdom. Okay? He's saying whispers trump shouts. He's saying words trump weapons. He can even say, God can, death can trump life. But that only happens in a very specific context for wisdom, doesn't it? It seems foolish to think of something so seemingly insignificant or out of place to be such a big help. But listen, it is the pattern of the Lord. It's the pattern of God to take what seemingly is nothing and make it something great. That's God's pattern. 
From the very beginning, it's what God has done. Now, I'm going to tell you two stories today, and then we're out of here, but I want you to see them. I don't want you to grow weary. I want you to flip over. Let's go to 1 Samuel 25. Now, both of the stories I want to read and tell you today that are in the Old Testament, that talk about the whispers of wisdom, they build a case for us. They point us to wisdom. What's amazing is they do it in two ways that's unified. One is both of the stories I'm going to share with you, it's women, not men, who are the wise ones in it. Now, I'm not telling you that for any reason politically or to gain any points with you. I just was very, very amazed to see that when the weapons of war of men in both the stories I'm going to show you are raging, that wisdom appears in the form of two women. It kind of sounds like Proverbs where lady wisdom stands on the street, okay? But there's that. And then the second thing that I want to show you before I tell you these two stories or point at you to them in the Bible is they're both stories of David. The first one will be David as a young man. The second will be David as an old man. But David will star in both of them. And David is, I want to remind you, the father of Solomon. The father of the man who we believe wrote this book, Ecclesiastes. So with all that giving you the context you need to give, let me tell you about 1 Samuel 25, and I want you to look at it with me because we'll read a lot of it. The story of David and Abigail and a fool named Abel, Nabal. Let me give you the context. Samuel, the great prophet of God, has just died. Okay, the man Saul, the king of Israel, he hates David because David's been chosen as king by God. He wants him dead. And David and his men at this point are in a wilderness. They become a mighty army of 600. Uh, they are a force to be reckoned with. Make no mistake about it. Okay, they are powerful. Now, this is the context, and it may seem out of place in preaching to just read the Bible, but listen, we have time, and I want us to understand the patience it takes to learn the whispers of wisdom. So pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 25. Let's read it. Look what it says. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Hey, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, the shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, when David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal and in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? <laughs> who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And, and about 400 men went up after David, uh, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, 
Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, so as long as they went with us. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while, we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, now know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, and five sayas of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisin, two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in his wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as with the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pain of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then please remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come to me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. He said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, The Lord struck Nabal and he died. But I say that wisdom is better than might. 
Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of rulers among the fools. Second story. Turn over to 2 Samuel 20. 2 Samuel verse 20. I won't read this one to you, but I'll tell you about it. You can look at it with me. I'll read a little bit of it. The story is now an old David. He learned about the foolish raging anger as he was stayed from keeping, you know, killing many. Now he's an old man. People kill for him now. And that's where we pick up because the story is about a man named Sheba. And it's about Sheba's rebellion. It's a little more complex. David has been king for decades. He has sinned with Bathsheba. He has lost that child. He's had another child, a young Solomon. And in his wisdom, he has believed the promises of God, David has. God has spared his life. He didn't kill him for what he should have. God should have killed him for what he did with Bathsheba, but he hasn't killed him. Instead, he's fulfilled his promise to David that David would have a very dysfunctional family. And that's what's happened. His own sons, Absalom, have rebelled against him and, and have done so much that David was forced out of Jerusalem. The king himself forced off the throne, forced into an ex exile of sorts. But our context is that now he has come back, okay? And what amazing, you need to read chapter 19 in your own quiet time, friends, because David, after having lost so much, forgives his enemies in, in chapter 19. But the context for us moving to the next chapter in 20 is that even though that is true, there are still men. And look at the very first verse. It opens with, now there happened to be there a worthless man, a fool, a Nabal, except his name was Sheba, the son of Bichri. I'll paraphrase this story for you, but I encourage you to read it later. Sheba flees, okay? And he flees and he tries to take other dissenting Israelites with him. He does not want an old David back on the throne. He wants a different type of kingdom. And so he runs like the fool does, and he runs and he tries to get other people. Now, David calls a certain servant named Amasa to go after and to get the people of Judah. And he tells Amasa, he says, hey, Amasa, make sure the people come back at a certain time. Turns out to be a test. Amasa leaves, doesn't come back at that time. You know what David knows? Amasa has betrayed him as well. So there goes Sheba. There goes Amasa. But then goes Joab. The king now sends, instead of going his own way, he sends Joab, leader of his army, to go after. Now, in verse 14 and 15, we see what he's chasing. It says, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah. That's a city, Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city and it, and, and it stood against the rampart. And what were they doing? They were battering the wall to throw it down. Sounds just like our sermon text. A besieged city that needs to be saved. That's the story. That's the context. There's Joab doing the right thing of the king. He's waging war. He's beating down the wall. Sheba is posted up inside with his other Bichrites. And what are they doing? They're trying to be held in. The walls are going to cave. But I want you to see something amazing about wisdom. Just like in Ecclesiastes, if you look in verse 16 of chapter 20, then an unknown wise woman what did she do? Called. <laughs> it says, then a wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. 
And so the leader came. Verse 17. She said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. She said, listen to the words of your servant. And he listened. I'm listening. This is what she said. They used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I'm, the, I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. <laughs> you seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Boom, Joab is struck with this counsel. And look at verse 20. Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up and destroy. That's not true. There's a man in there. And he points out, he says, Sheba is in there rebelling against the king and then giving back. Verse 22, the woman went all to the people in wisdom. This may not be popular to read, but look what happened. They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. And so he blew a trumpet. And they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. That's it. The whisper of wisdom is Sheba meets a violent end, but wisdom was able to go out and confront the enemy at the gate to say, hold on, this is wrong. You need to pause to seek counsel. Wisdom was given and it was able to be taken back to the center of the city upon which a very violent act had to happen. Sure, a man's head lobbed off. And then it was thrown out to appease the enemy. And then upon receiving it, the enemy then leaves the walls. And there's life again in the city of wisdom where this woman can live. Unnamed, not the male leader you expected to go out and fight. Silent, one conversation, a few conversations behind the scenes, and a victory. A, a wisdom wins the days. Why? They entrusted themselves to God. Now, friend, hear me in this conclusion. There are ultimately two ways to live in this life. As Matthias Media's resource puts it, you can reject the ruler God and try to run life on your own way. The result will always be condemned by God. You will be condemned by God. You will face death. You will face judgment in your life. You'll live a life outside of the walls. Okay? But then a second way to live is God's way, which submits to Jesus as our ruler and relies on Jesus' death and resurrection. The result is you're forgiven by God. Let me tell you in conclusion, I hope an encouragement today about the real whispers of God's wisdom. Now, the preacher has pointed out, and he'll keep doing it next week, that there is lessons to learn in all these little stories of war. Right? There's lessons to learn when the King David has to be his has to have his rage steadied by this woman Abigail. Or when the, the, the king's order of Joab to break down the walls at all costs to get Sheba, actually the better part of wisdom is to do what? Listen to the voice of this wise woman. Okay, the whispers of wisdom of God always point us to God. And when we do that and we see what the second way to live that I just mentioned is, when we start saying things like, we're Christians, Jesus is our ruler, immortal, invisible, God only is wise. And God in his wisdom declared his wisdom among us. And that while we were still sinners, God demonstrates wisdom by sending his only son, not born under the trumpets of men in the high castles of a culture that supported the weapons of war. No, this wisdom was whispered into existence into the womb of a nobody, a young virgin girl in a stall under the trumpets of heaven, not to the world, but to a bunch of shepherds, dirty men. 
That's how God whispers wisdom, right? Not exalted in Jerusalem in the holy of holies as the greatest priest to ever live. No, whispers of a man from Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? Whispers about a teaching that is with authority. Whispers that we, we, but we know his parents and we know he's a carpenter from Galilee. How can he be a high priest of all high priests? Oh, but that's just it. He is. He is the whispers of wisdom. They were not an army of mighty men. They were not a white horse of champions. They were not a battle after the Roman Empire with a legion of men behind them. No, it was whispers of wisdom on the colt of a donkey, followed by 12 nobodies, followed by fishermen and rejects, tax collectors. It wasn't a roaring speech on the greatest of Jewish holidays before the watching Jewish world. It was not a shout of acclamation against the pagan nation of Rome as they gathered before their deplorable oppressors. It was not a fight against the religious leader, the puppet king Pilate, um, to say, we want you dead. No, whispers of wisdom in a few tactical comments. And then the wisdom of the whisper of, of wisdom was that it stopped talking. It was silence before the throne of a puppet king Pilate. It was silence before his enemies who would kill him. It was silence like a lamb before slaughter. It was the whispers of heaven, crucified and killed, snuffed out. He atoned for loudmouth murderers like me and you in his silence. The whispers of heaven, the whispers of wisdom in Jesus are to be believed. We must believe that this right here, this point, atonement, is our starting point. If we're gonna gain an ear for the whispers of wisdom ourselves, friend, we may know what is next, but we must preach it. You see, the whispers of wisdom did not stay silented. They rose from the grave. Jesus rose from the grave and it was not silent and it could not be kept silent. It was a roaring event never to be seen again until the final day when you and I all believe and the, the ones who believe are raised up with him in the last days to live in newness of life. If we want to walk in the whispers of wisdom in this world, the empty tomb has to be behind us and the spirit of God must fill us and then, only then, can we experience the roar of the resurrection. For it was that. But here's the idea about this whole thing. Our weapons of wisdom are born out, our, excuse me, our weapons of war are born out of the whispers of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is pitting them side by side. But true faith and repentance will grab both. It will say, there is a wisdom beyond me that must be in me. Because I'm not, I'm not either. I'm, I'm, I'm simultaneously the enemy that's saging the city and the city under siege. I'm both. I'm ruined on either side of it. And I need a grand commander to come in, patch the wall, and make me whole. That's atonement, right? And then I need the, the diligence to go to other places and battle. And when I'm there, I need, I need, I need the ram of rams. I need the truth. I need my truth to roar against their truth. Because they think their truth is going to win, but I got to believe my truth, his truth, heaven's witness in me is enough to break down any wall. I got to believe that. And if I don't stay balanced and I seek something else, I look like David often, crud. I almost just became my own salvation. God, forgive me again. Again, God, forgive me again, Right? And me and you, man, we will fight this, this battle. But for us who believe, let God take what is foolish and let him shame the wise. Okay, let him do it in your own heart. Let him do it around you. 
right? You can simultaneously be wisdom personified and walk with Abigail and the wise woman of, 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 of that city and the poor man of Ecclesiastes. But if you're going to do it, you got to realize you got to live like Christ. You got to see the one for who the whispers gave way to silence, that gave way to a roar, that gave way to mine and your hope that can lead us in daily living. All right. And that's the application of this. So if we be in Christ, we have access to the whispers of wisdom. When we forget our needfulness of him, we end up waging the weapons of war. And this battle will rage continually. And the author of Ecclesiastes is going to take it right up until its end. You can rest assured of that. But you and me, we can rest differently. We can rest in Jesus. And so my prayer as we pray is just that, that we will rest in Jesus, that we will learn to scream less and whisper more. And may we believe that our tiny whispers, they're taking down the the giant. They always are in God's economy and faith in Christ. And so let me pray for us and then we'll sing and, and then we'll have some time of prayer together. Let's pray. God, thank you for the whispers of wisdom, the hope of heaven, that a little baby was born and that was enough. For that baby cried out that it is finished, it is done, and that is enough. And so, God, we pray that you will help us to find our voice in surrender. God, we are to be a people surrendered to your will, to your way, to your life, to your leading, God. And we are stubborn and rebellious. God, we love our own thoughts, and you tell us to forsake them. And then when in forsaking them, God, you tell us that you never leave or forsake us. So, God, help us to have all of our thoughts to be your vision, all of our surrender to be under your leadership. God, if we're to be the warriors you called us to be, God, and we're to roar like an F-22, it can only happen with you. God, help us to realize that. God, we would soon strap a sword on our hip and go and try to slay those who we perceive to be our enemies, only to be met with wisdom and say that we need to see the enemy is within us. So God, would you slay first what is in us so that we can then go forth and be your servants in the world and not overlook wisdom. Father, keep us from folly. God, help us to walk in the ways of wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.